Today we have a special guest, Dr. Corey Zimney, who's joining us from the University of South Dakota, my old stomping ground. And we are just excited to have Corey speak to us a bit about how we can get better as clinicians in managing folks in persistent pain. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to Pain Reframed. Welcome to the show, Corey. I'm excited you're here and excited you're probably broadcasting there from South Dakota. So why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background on where you're at and what you're up to recently. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun to chat about pain in general. I guess it's kind of become my life the last 10 years or so where I kind of dove into this stuff. I'm currently at the University of South Dakota. I teach in the PT program there uh, and working with the students. We have, also have an online transitional program, so I do a little bit of teaching um, with the online program and currently working with my dissertation myself through the PhD program down at Nova Southeastern, uh, working, uh, looking a little bit into the trust and therapeutic alliance is kind of my main area that I'm kind of looking at and how that fits into pain science. Interesting on your PhD work. I mean, we've really are just off another podcast where the therapeutic alliance was really strong uh, at the center of that. And, you know, as you've dived into kind of your background and some of your research, what would you say has, have, have you stumbled across that's been most uh, striking about this concept about therapeutic alliance? Well, I think it's just, you know, and, and actually, you know, Adrian asked me, you know, why, because I specifically I'm looking at trust. Um, and Adrian asked me, you know, what, you know, why did you kind of, you know, where did that fall into? And for me, it was just that clinical, kind of those clinical aha moments of, you know, when did, educating patients to get them to understand how pain works and just to progress them then with their exercises and utilizing manual techniques. And, you know, when did it, you know, for me clinically, when it seemed like his work, it's like when the patient would trust me enough to realize they're going to be okay and they could start to move um, and not fear the pain. Uh, and, and so it got me thinking, you know, how, you know, we should be able to measure this thing called trust. And um, so as I searched through the literature and really finding that trust is measured, you know, from a physician standpoint in the psychology literature, but um, we've kind of looked at general therapeutic alliance, but one of the key components of therapeutic alliance that was found in another uh, more of a qualitative study had trust as one of those key underpinning components of therapeutic alliance. So that really kind of got me diving into thinking, well, let's see if we can't measure this trust a little bit um, and see what effect that may have on outcomes uh, more specifically with patients. So that's really going to be the the bulk of where my, my dissertation is going to be taking me. It's interesting that, again, trust is kind of an attribute of a therapeutic alliance. What are some of the measurement tools that we can use to kind of measure that 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 concept of trust? Right. Well, that's the thing that, you know, like I said, as I look through the literature, you know, I found out that there was these trust measurement scales used in the physician literature, but nothing had ever really been used um, in physical therapy. None of them have been used directly in physical therapy. So that's really kind of where I'm starting at first is, I guess, to establish do those scales these trust and physician scales and the patient care assessment survey, do they actually translate into physical therapy? You know, so when I'm working with patients, do we see that? So going to kind of dive into this to see if those scales will hopefully transfer over um, into physical therapy. And if they do, then obviously it's taking them to see, is there a way we can actually start trying to 
you know, improve those levels and does that help improve outcomes um, within that, which is kind of one of the strange things. Um, one of the physician studies that they did, they, you know, they had a good way of assessing it, found that obviously it was important from outcomes and from patient follow-through and all those kind of things. And then they went through a nice training program and as unfortunately we find in research so often that it didn't really seem to make a difference that they really couldn't adjust or shift that a whole lot. You know, obviously that's just one study. So, you know, maybe there's different training techniques and things like that that we have to do. But it's, it's you know, we've talked about those, you know, and you've talked a lot, Tim, those soft skills. Um, you know, how do, how do we get those points across to patients and how do we make that connection? Um, and I think it's just such a... A diverse, interesting skill um, that's just so hard to measure. It's so hard to capture, yet it's so important. Um, kind of always draws me back to my management days um, and studying. You know, Deming, his big thing. You know, everything you need to measure everything. You know, from a management perspective. But he often said the most important things are you know something that you can't measure. <laughs> and I just feel like some of these therapeutic alliances is just one of those things. It's such a hard thing to measure, yet we know how vital and important it is. And it's a challenging thing. Some Sometimes too, I think to teach because it's it's so broad in so many different areas, and sometimes people focus into one area like they're going to improve that, um, and, and it's we have to take a more global, big picture look at it and how to just grow this this sense of relationship with your patients um, in a therapeutic format. Um, I think it's just an in, interesting concept that I think hopefully it continues to grow for us to have that ability to study and um, kind of break it down, but but to still just appreciate it for the, for the larger concept of what it is too. No, I really appreciate that, Corey. And, and like you said, it's challenging to teach because it's challenging to measure, right? I mean, those two things tend to kind of correlate. Uh, I, I remember recently seeing Chad Cook and Mike Ryman having some great dialogue on Twitter on working on some different therapeutic alliance measurement tools. So I was really pumped to hear that because like you said, especially I think in this area that we're, that we're talking about in treating patients that have persistent pain and ongoing symptoms, I think that there therapeutic alliance and trust is probably more important in that domain than anywhere because the things you're going to challenge them with and the things you're going to ask them to begin understanding, you know, that hurt doesn't equal harm. I mean, these abstract concepts that don't initially make a whole lot of sense, you know, surely hurt equals harm. I mean, traditionally, that's the way we've paired those things together. So we're going to be challenging them not only with hard concepts, but then with hard assignments, including, you know, graded exercise and graded exposure where we are going to deliberately discover the things that you're fearful of and dose them back into your program where we're going to ask you to exercise in the presence of symptoms. And really all of that is underpinned by trust. And I, I, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled you're researching that because if we don't have trust in this area, I don't think we have outcomes. Yeah. And, and that's like I said, I think, you know, it's, I mean, now that I've kind of landed on this topic um, the last few years and really kind of been diving into research, it's just interesting how often I hear just in conversations, um, you know, when you hear clinicians speak on your podcast or other ones and how many times that word trust, you know, they, they have to trust you and we have to work together, you know, and there's just that sense that it has to be there yet. It's so interesting, something that seems so important that we just don't have a way of measuring it. Uh, we don't really have a way of training our students probably um, directly into how to develop those skills to, to create that aspect of, of building trust within uh, a therapeutic sense. So yeah, it's just been, yeah, it's just been really been interesting to me. So many of us feel it's so important, yet we unfortunately don't seem to really have a good way to measure. Um, and then if we can measure it, you know, how much of a difference does it make? And, and is there ways that we can improve it? Yeah, a- absolutely. And, you know, 
Tim, you have really become, whether you know it or not, I think a really esteemed figure in this area of soft skills. You, you know, your name comes up over and over again. You know, Corey brought it up that you've always had an emphasis on it, but also I've had a chance to see you in clinic and, and, and with your, in your managerial position with all of us. Tim, how, you're in a, a leadership position um, across all sorts of educations. One of the biggest ones being South College, where you have entry level DPTs, kind of a, a great place to intervene early and start building some of these skills. Corey and I are both kind of wrestling with the challenge of doing so. What are some things, Tim, some strategies that you're using that maybe all of us in a teaching environment might use to help build some of those soft skills, to bring attention and possibly refine and develop what we all agree are critical skills to gain outcomes in all these patient populations? You know, I think it starts, if we're talking in the educational space, and I'm talking healthcare in general, and PT specifically, uh, it clearly starts with getting better, attracting the type of individuals that we want to attract into our profession. And I, I do worry that as the competition has increased for PT slots, physical therapy slots, you know, the, the metrics that we know are not good of GPA, GRE scores, you know, those types of metrics have, you know, do not correlate to building trust and therapeutic alliance, you know. As, but as those have elevated, I get concerned because we do know in medicine, we basically have selected on skills that often are not associated with the, what have traditionally been called the soft skills. Uh, to that end, a recent uh, blog post from a, a professional patient in a medical school was just uh, highlighting just the fast difference across medical students in how they responded to the exact same scenario. And not only did they get different treatments, but more importantly, it was just the patient, what she felt like in each of those encounters. And I think that I guess the call there is to really step back as a healthcare industry and say, you know, at our core, we are healers and coaches. So what is the best way to select healers and coaches? Um, is it a reductionist mindset or is it more of a global liberal arts humanities perspective, which used to be a big part of the, the prep work to get into these areas versus the hard science. And I would argue that you can learn the scientific methodology is a sound methodology that should be learned from second grade on of how we think. Now, we can make arguments it's not happening to the way it should, but those principles are way easier to, um, to teach uh, than these other skills really require some living and um, breathing and 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 death to among us even to to understand you know uh, what it is to be to be a human. So the question I'll phrase it that was about you know getting the right person to seek out healthcare. Secondly, not you know, not beating it out of them uh, when those people have that, that, that skill when they come in. So not beating that out of them that often happens in, in some of our professional healthcare schools where it's dog-eat-dog dog versus collaboration. And then obviously starting with this type of data which shows how important this is to the management of your patients going forward. So first you understand that this is as important, if not more important, than all the other skills we're teaching you and then provide 
course content that fosters that, you know, that has people look at, you know, their themselves and monitoring themselves and actually have courses on what they may be called professional development, but they really are personal development courses designed to, to really dig within ourselves and what are my beliefs, what are my implicit biases, what are those that I bring to the table, and then say, okay, here are strategies by which we can we can get better at that and provide feedback through peer-to-peer feedback and uh, you know faculty to faculty to student feedback. So I mean that's kind of the general way that that we're doing it at South. I love it. That's a phenomenal answer, and I think that brings up some things we don't tend to think about, and that is recruiting the right kind of person um, into the profession, and then not not robbing what they come in with. You know, that, that that's a great point, Corey. As you guys go around and teach, I know you are very involved in trying to to help people through the ISP Institute sort of programs. Are, are there strategies that you guys use for for individuals who are post graduate, and you know this is important, the ability to develop this therapeutic alliance. You know these soft skills are huge. How how do you guys incorporate some of that training um, into the programs that you offer? Probably one of the biggest take-homes, I think, just from some of the earlier courses, you know, when I took them from Adrian and Louie and stuff, was just that authenticity of pain is hard and you're not going to get everybody better, but you sure can make a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. And it was probably seemed like one of the first times I had been to a course where the person that stood up there really didn't tell me that they had all the answers um, because a lot of the answers change um, depending on the patient in front of you and it's never as cut and dry and as perfect as you would like and and I think that was something that you know really stuck with me from a treatment standpoint because I had been to so many courses and they would tell me how they fixed everybody and then I'd go back on Monday and I'd get a lot of people better but still not everybody and then I would think well either, you know my skills must not be good enough so I would you know race off to the next course to try to advance the you know the next uh, new trick that I needed, you know, and the new tool in the toolbox. And, and I, you know, looking back on those now, you know, 20 plus years of, you know, being out of school, you know, a lot of those courses that I went to those first five, 10 years of my career was just that, that the thing that I was probably so focused into them doing their manual technique, uh, which the skill is important, but what I was probably missing was just how they were relating with patients, that that, that may be that missing link that I probably was missing a lot as, a, you know, as an early um, graduate, that I just hadn't paid attention to those things. Well, it's so interesting that you mentioned the term authenticity, and that that is a word that you know, I, I find myself saying more and more as it's a key element. And I'm just curious, your thoughts, Corey, on how that rolls into this, this, this concept of trust and how, you know, do you tease that out? Yeah, I, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's one of those things I really, you know, it's, it's just interesting because if you go just kind of into the basic emotions, um, obviously there's all sorts of different lists out there and different theories of thought on emotions, but trust is one of the main um, in some of the studies, it's just one of the main emotions that we have. And I think it's just that realization that we are emotional people, that that is just a part of who we are. Like you said, we always kind of get this either or, you know, it's either scientific or it's emotional. And it's this idea that it's always both. You know, we have both this logical side, yet we have this emotional side, and they always work hand in hand together. Um, and it's just that understanding that a person that you have to, to, to accept that portion. And I think the only way to create that relationship is in that sense of true authenticity and understanding that emotions are real. Um, they're not made up just like pain uh, is always real. It's never made up. And, and it's trying to just, I, for me, 
just clinically and as the years of teaching it, um, just really coming to the deep grasp of understanding that. Um, which I think, you know, it's easy on the surface to say, okay, I get it, you know, pain and injury are the same thing. But like you said, that, that the patients have to get that. I always go back, um, you know, Adrian always would share, you know, that David Butler used to always say that, you know, patients have to understand this stuff into the marrow of their bones. And then I thought to myself, how much better do I need to understand it? You know, I mean, if they have to get it that good, I have to know it that much deeper, that much more, because it's the only way I can be authentic about it, the only way I can be real, um, probably the only way I can truly gain their trust is because I have to know it so well um, to truly help them. So, I, yeah, I think it's just, you know, that part of um, that confidence in who you are and what you know um, and letting that authenticity um, ring true. And we are all so good at, at measuring and judging who's real and who isn't. You know, we, we like to think we can put on a put on a show and put on our happy face or whatnot. But uh, the reality is, is we are amazingly good. Um, and you realize our patients are just as good at figuring out when you're real and when you're not real. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it goes to that idea of resonance and how a great encounter, you know, it, you really resonate off the emotions uh, of the, uh, the patient family you're with and, and vice versa. And sometimes, uh, those you're, you're sinking together and sometimes uh, you're really at a 180 degree opposite. And I think, you know, I often say expertise is quickly understanding that, okay, we, we, we are not, there's a communication problem here. And whether you actually state that versus just the realization that, okay, what I've said has been misinterpreted and it, it may very well through those micro expressions you saw in that patient may have well offended them. Owning that very quickly with and having statements to own it to say, is something I said, did that upset you or did I say something wrong? And putting it in my, you know, owning that I said something, can we discuss this further? Um, those simple strategies sometimes can really buy you, uh, buy you a time to kind of reset if you will, in, in that encounter versus what we know is if you don't change that in our minds, that record is playing over and over and the rest of your visit may not may not go well and frankly could be counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think the more I've kind of gone in this, you know, and that's where, again, we get into all the, the quantitative studies and in, in measuring significant or not, what the effect size and stuff, but those qualitative studies, you know, I, I just love when patients tell you what they feel. I mean, there's the one, you know, what does arthritis mean to them? And one person's comment was within two years, I should be in a wheelchair. And, and just understanding that that kind of stuff is what's going on in their heads. And we have to, you know, bring the elephant in the room out into the open and just discuss it and break it down. And, you know, it's to help them understand what the real truth out there, because there's so much misconception um, of what patients have about their health care and just the fears and the anxieties and stuff that they probably have even dug into because they're afraid to dig into some of those things. And, and the more we're aware of that and the more we, like you said, pay attention just to those subtleties by with how their eyes gaze, you know, if they're a little withdrawn or anything like that, and, and the better we can pick up on that just to start those discussions, it can be so beneficial. Yeah, I'd love to see training develop. And, and Corey, I, I hope that as you guys get better or more equipped to, to measure these things, we can then begin to really get deliberate training because you know, some of those those nonverbals, those real, those real subtleties of the way someone's standing, and can you change your body language? You know, when should you sit? When should you stand? Making sure they have a clear path to the door. Just everything about the way that you engage with that person. 
You know, the, the real experts that I see have that incredible ability to morph their nonverbals to make the patient more comfortable. And, you know, back in the day when I was critiquing fellowship videos, it was all about what exactly we said and was that the right question at the right time. And nowadays, as I'm mentoring, I'm, I'm looking more, whether it's at myself or, or at a student I'm working with, at are they, are they carrying themselves the right way for the emotional status of the patient? And as you said, these things will forever change challenge and maybe even transcend measurement. But I think that if we have them in front of mind, that we, we can alter our behavior to really improve the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, that's that whole thing, you know, being attuned into your patient and just that concept, you know, of, you know, I mean, obviously we're using and understanding mirror neurons a little bit more and more from a treatment standpoint, you know, as far as what we do with graded motor imagery and things like that. But, but also that concept of just like you said, the words that we chose to use, you know, are we mirroring the words that our patients are using? Are we mirroring their body language? And once we get them mirrored up with each other and we're connecting in that concept, you know, because we know in a normal conversation, if you lean in, I usually lean in. And if you lean one way, I'll lean that same way, you know, but understanding that when you first connect with a patient, you need to mirror into what they're doing. But then that wonderful power that you have to maybe pull them out of their position by getting them to mirror more of what you're doing. So there's that level, once you can develop that sense of trust with them, you know, now I have your trust. Um, now can I actually start to pull you out of wherever you were before? Once I've established that, can we get this more kind of a shared uh, where we can empower them and, and kind of bring them into a more positive state with things? I think it's just an interesting concept of, uh, like you said, developing those skills and, and just being aware of them. Um, it's probably one of the bigger things is just, just that, just the awareness that all that is happening in that clinical clinical encounter. Well, there's a nugget nugget in there, Corey, when you really talked about this idea of mirroring your patient and harkens back to, you know, again, the improv comedy and the, 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 the idea of a lot of several PTs do improv and how they've you know, kind of brought that into how that really helps with, you know, really patient encounters that we really do have to, it is a dance uh, with, with the patient there and, and being aware of it, but also realizing that, you know, you can, you can measure it and you've gave a very simple strategy of just, you know, how we mirror their posture to start with. Now, Clearly, folks are, are down. We want to bring them out, but it doesn't happen by being this this real power pose entering, you know, someone that is really, you know, withdrawn and pulled in that actually can serve to, to actually be harmful where we need to kind of gradually bring them out of that. So it starts with, as you said, mirroring where they're at currently, which opens the window to kind of begin to nudge uh, more energy into the encounter. Yeah, it's just that whole, you know, I mean, we talk, you know, I mean, you can talk about just communication styles as far as the words that we use, but also just think of the, the nonverbal, which is obviously the larger percent of the communication process that we as humans use, you know, and I think sometimes we, we, we kind of say, oh, you know, you got to be aware of your nonverbals, but like you said, how much time do we spend practicing that? You know, I always talk to the students a lot that, you know, they, they get in the lab and they practice their manual techniques and teaching each other exercises, but those verbal skills, you know, uh, it's just repeating over and over to them is you, you just got to sit down. It's awkward as heck the first few times. Um, and you think you should be able to just speak to people, but you just have to practice it. It's just like any other skill. You have to practice it. Then you have to go through reflective thought practices afterwards to say what went right, what could have went better. Um, try it again and reflect and keep going back 
back and forth. And that's the really the only way to really to attune any skill um, is through that is is to be an intentional to it and be direct towards it. And really those communication levels are the exact same thing that any manual technique or any exercise um, or program goes. We have to have that same intentionality, that same wanting to, to really make that difference. That's great, Corey. I think that we always try to be actionable on the podcast and give people some ideas and strategies and how they can go out and improve what we talk about. And I would argue that the best one that I have seen is just to videotape your patient encounter, you know, and then go back and watch their nonverbals respond to yours and really look at how the patient carries themselves, you know, when their shoulders elevate, when they look stressed, like you said, where their eyes are going, when they seem to lose focus, and then look at what you're doing and really study that encounter. I think there's um, incredible value there. And that's one thing, just talking with the students is getting them to realize, you know, I think as we get to be clinicians and after we practice for a while, there's just so much that goes on in that encounter that, you know, our brain is able to process all of that um, and handle it. But I think especially for the for the newer grads um, and the students and stuff, it, it's just realizing how much that goes on during that encounter from just your technique and the order of how you do things and, and how your, your nonverbals are speaking and what your verbals are saying and the communication and, and the dance that's going back and forth and stuff. There's just so many factors. And, and like you said, I think the videotaping is a great way because it's a chance to slow it down and to repeat and really start picking in on all those nuances that really go into that clinical encounter, which really, like I said, really adds to your ability to get those outcomes. Corey, thanks so much. And, and do you mind as we kind of talk about um, just, just education and, and change and strategy and action items, do you mind chatting a bit? I know that the clinical conference for neuroplasticity is coming up. And again, we want to you know create avenues for individuals listening to the podcast to get better at, at managing folks with persistent pain. Can, can, do you mind just chatting for a second sort of about what that conference is, is going to cover and maybe your role in it and, and just give us some info on that? Yeah, no, the, the clinical conference, like, um, it's kind of the, one of the conferences I enjoy because, um, like Adrian says, um, it's the one time a year he gets to pick who he wants to go listen to, you know, so it's anybody that he wants to listen to or, you know, our group, um, we just bring them in for our conference. So, you know, if, when people always ask, you know, well, if you went to a course, where would you go? And it's like, we'd go to ours because we just ask him to come to our course because <laughs> that's who we want to hear. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of fun um, to bring them in. Um, I do unfortunately have to speak, so I do have to miss some of the presenters on some of the days. But um, I get Steve Schmidt and I are doing our graded motor imagery uh, program on um, Friday and Sunday. So, but that's always fun. Steve and I, um, I just have so much fun teaching with Steve. I respect just his knowledge and his presentation is so much fun. But yeah, the, yeah on Fridays and Sunday will be the the breakout sessions, um, so yeah, they can kind of pick and choose which ones they want to go to. And some of them will be repeated. Um, and then Saturday is the main kind of more keynote lecture where we're going to have, you know, our main keynote speakers, you know, Steve Schmidt's going to be speaking on looking at stress and when pain and stress kind of collide and come together, uh, Nancy Bile, uh, is going to be talking about focal dystonia and really diving into that area. Hunter Hoffman's going to show some of his virtual reality stuff and I'm not even going to get into, uh, I was going to mess her name up, Saban. I'm going to mess it up bad, so I won't even attempt to, but she'll be kind of one of the main keynotes 
coming there from Australia, um, just with her work with neuroplasticity and pain and, and really diving into that. So, and then those will be followed up after those kind of main keynote hour-long sessions. We'll have some shorter breakout little lectures where we're going to kind of cover more just the research that we're doing. I, I get to cover one of my recent, we did an fMRI study uh, with a CRPS pain patient looking at just brain changes before and after different educational approaches and stuff. So I uh, get to share some of that. So yeah, we get to share some of the different research that we've done. Get everybody, hopefully the, the new stuff that we're, we're diving into and trying to stay ahead of the curve um, with the research that we're trying to produce. And as we kind of dive and look at, you know, graded motor imagery and looking at using therapeutic neuroscience education and all the effects that that has on neuroplasticity and, and some of the techniques within that and using localization training and how that can affect uh, looking we did Adrian did with some of the uh, residents at St. Ambrose looking at shoulder and uh, knee pain uh, using some localization training and how that affected so just getting the participants you know some of the latest research along with hearing like I said getting to hear the the people that we want to hear uh, speak that are really up to date and current on this stuff and it's kind of fun too because it's probably not your typical people that you would probably go see um, that run the main lecture circuit here in the states um, you know you get some outside perspectives Paul Hodges yeah. is coming up and doing some of his stuff on motor control and that's going to be amazing too yeah it sounds like a great great conference and that that's going on in uh june 9th through 11th so it's only about a month away in minneapolis yep so like i said that friday and the, the good thing about it too is that you can kind of pick and choose if you know you, you only can make it one day you can do that if you want to make it two if you want to do all three um yeah you can pick and choose with that but yeah it's on friday saturday and sunday and friday and saturday are just half days so it'll be in the afternoon on Friday and then Sunday morning. Um, Saturday is a full day long. But just like any conference, though, the, the ability to network is probably one of the biggest things that you get out of it um, is just during the breaks and during lunch and afterwards with some of the social hours. Um, you're just in a room with a couple hundred people that, that really want to help their patients, I think, and that's um, in figuring out how to be better clinicians. And that's probably one of the probably one of the best things that, that you can take home from a conference like that. That's awesome. Well, th- thanks for that, Corey, because I know a lot of folks have, have asked us about it. And you know, it's nice because Minneapolis is so easy to get in and out of. Um, and that's about a month out. So that's a whole, whole power-packed group of speakers um, and a ton of info. So, well, Corey, thanks so much for your time. I, I love the conversation we had about you know, the soft skills and and the relationship, especially in people that have chronic pain, and some strategies to to begin working on that, to build that trust, to build that alliance. And please keep us uh, up to date as you guys find better and better ways to measure it, so that we can continue to hone um, the way that we're teaching it. Corey, as, as we take off, do you mind giving the giving the listeners um, just some info to track you um, as far as your Twitter handle, maybe your email address, um, any other courses that you're doing, or or any other info you want them to have on their hands? Yeah, um, email wise, you can just reach me. It's Corey Zimney, that's K-O-R-Y dot Z-I-M-N-E-Y at U-S-D dot E-D-U. Twitter is at Zimney K-J. Every now and then I'm on the E-I-M blog. I'll post on there occasionally uh, so they can always contact me through through that as well. Course-wise, just yeah, at the ISPI site, teaching um, with them primarily the, the more pain-related courses and stuff. So that's um, if they're interested in any of those, uh, they can always go to the ISPI site and check on those. Perfect, Corey. Thank you again so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Take care, Corey. Wow, great conversation with Corey Zimney of the International Spine and Pain Institute. 
you know, time and time again, we talk about trying to manage folks that, that are dealing with persistent symptoms. And what comes up over and over again is the importance of those soft skills and that authenticity. So nice to, nice to hear Corey to bring some of his humility about the challenges of treating this population, that how important those soft skills are. But even with everything on board, just realize that, that for those of you who are out there trying to bump the needle forward with these folks, it is a challenging population. And don't beat yourself up. Stay in the game. Um, work on the nonverbals, work on the soft skills, and, and just just really realize that you being in this fight is 90% of the battle. So great conversation with Corey. Um, great to hear about the conference coming up. So I hope a lot of you are able to track that and engage in that. Again, that's going to be the clinical conference put on by the International Spine and Pain Institute. And that is June 9th through 11th. And that's going to be in Minneapolis. It's going to be three days of, like Corey said, some of the highest powered speakers that are sort of hand selected um, by Adrian and the group to come in and really deliver some great content for those who are trying to um, come alongside folks who are managing persistent symptoms. So definitely a not miss conference there. So thanks again, guys. Keep tracking us. ISPinstitute.com, evidenceinmotion.com on the blog. Um, and always all over Twitter and social media at EIM team. I'm saying with the ISPI, so keep tracking us and we will talk to you soon. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.